You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. Well, Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. We do need illumination. We need you to uh, shine light on it. Your word is not merely just uh, algebra or philosophy or something that we can grasp hold of on our own. So we pray for your grace that we might understand and know and trust and believe and find joy in what you have given for us. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Contrary to what your bulletin might say, uh, today is not a torch day. That is next week. So, kids, you can stay in here. This is a good one for you to be here with. Uh, if, if you've gotten to know me at all, my name is Nathan, by the way. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you've gotten to know me, you can know, or you might know that I can talk. Uh, it, it should, my wife is nodding. I didn't even ask her for her opinion, but she agrees. Uh, listening is something that I've had to learn to do rather than just immediately talk. And early on in our marriage, Marcy would often, when we were at dinner parties or something, give me a, uh, a gentle yet firm squeeze on the knee under the table, which was a silent signal to me to uh, communicate, hey, you idiot, uh, stop talking. Uh, why don't you listen for a change? Uh, thankfully, uh, that's happening less and less these days of an under-the-table squeeze on the knee. Uh, but I still do get squeezes on the knee, not necessarily because I've been talking for so long, but because of the things that I talk about. Namely, uh, all the times that I bring up, all the times uh, an article that I have recently read that someone has just said something that has reminded me of that, or a podcast that I have recently listened to. I'm a bit of a podcast junkie. I love them, but Marcy often reminds me that not everyone is interested in the things that I'm interested in. But uh, I'm going to, one podcast that I'm interested in lately, uh, you can be interested in this, even though you might not be. There's a podcast called How I Built This, and it is a uh, episodes of 
interviews with people who have built something. They have made some sort of product or company that you usually have heard of and that is very profitable and successful. And one thing that is generally true of most of these companies is that they are introducing something novel or a disruptive product or service or system into the market. So whether it is like Lyft or Airbnb or Instacart or Spanx, you know, uh, whatever it is, generally the existing markets are either very intimidated by this new product or service that is, in, that is entered into, and so the existing markets and, and competitors are like doing everything, everything they can to crush this new upstart entrepreneur, or they try to join them, either by uh, making some knockoff or investing, joining, or trying to even just buy up this new upstart. Here's the thing though, not all things that are new are necessarily good and should be adopted. But big new things can often be intimidating, can often be threatening. So for previous generations, it was like the, the, the horseless buggy, you know, the motorized vehicle is a new and dangerous thing. It's intimidating or passenger jet travel or buying things on the internet. Can you remember in the 90s, the first time you ever purchased something on the internet, how scary that once was? Or now artificial intelligence or like driverless cars. Well, somewhere around the year 1200 to 1400 BC, a disruptive new understanding of life and the world was interjected into the ancient Near East. An understanding that there is one creator God without rival. An understanding that this creator God has covenanted himself to a specific people and that through them he would bring, bring redemption to peoples of all the earth. And for many, this idea, this new understanding of the world would be threatening and intimidating. And for many of these peoples, they would try to squash or crush the new upstart understanding of the world. For many though, this idea and understanding uh, for others would be like, they would, it's like they could see into the future. This is like a, the wave of the future. I gotta, I gotta get involved in this. This is the way of reality now. How can I align myself with this understanding? So tonight, here's the deal. All week I was planning on contrasting the, the Gentile response to this new idea of God and his people, uh, the Gentile response of the Amalekites in chapter 17 against the Gentile response of Jethro and his people. And uh, I had a wonderfully pithy outline. Uh, the nations come up and fight compared and contrasted with the, the nations come up and feast. But then two things happened on Friday as I was writing this sermon. Uh, first, my fingers just kept typing and typing, and I hadn't even gotten out of chapter 17 yet, and I was like, oh shoot, there's a lot here in chapter 18. But then I also remember that we're gonna take some time at the end of this service to welcome our new members. Uh, so I decided, uh, in order to not just skim the surface on this chapter and a half, uh, or to have Christchurch kids become like Lord of the Flies or something. Uh, we're just going to push all of chapter 18 to next week. And I'm sure we all just had a mental picture of like the elementary age room with like a pig's head on a spike or something. Because there are lots of boys in that room. But if you'll forgive me, I'm not going to give you like a, a pithy structured outline tonight. We're just going to brute force this entire second half of chapter 17. So in verse 8 of chapter 17 the narrative abruptly changes from where we left off last week. 
in verse 7. It moves from where we left off, where Israel had put Yahweh on trial for not providing exactly what they wanted, exactly when they wanted it, and yet God still, nevertheless, graciously provided all that they needed. He provided water from the rock, which we saw last week. The rock is Jesus. I didn't say that. The Bible says that. So when we get to verse 8, uh, and remember, the original Hebrew scrolls don't have like these paragraphs and these wonderful uh, chapter breaks and subtitles. So we don't see, if you were just reading this on a scroll, how abrupt verse 8 might come. But it just comes at us. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. We aren't given any context. We aren't given any notes on who Amalek is or the Amalekites, as they're often referred to. No notes are needed at the time, though, for the original audience. They would have known quite well who the Amalekites are. But since we may not have this context, let's try to catch up just a bit. Uh, In Genesis 14, we read of this dude named Amalek. And Amalek is Esau's grandson, which makes Amalek the great-great-grandson of Abraham. And what we read in verse 8 of Exodus 17 is exactly what it reads in the Hebrew. Not that the Amalekites came up and fought with Israel, but Amalek, like the singular dude. Now, presumably, this is not still this same guy, Amalek, from many hundreds of years later, but his descendants of that guy from Genesis. And don't forget that Israel is also the name of a singular person also. Israel's the second name, the changed name of Jacob. So Amalek came and fought with Jacob. Amalek came and fought with Israel. These two nations are so bound up in the identity of their cultural, their ancestral source. And while we don't know why in Exodus, why Amalek came to fight, later in Deuteronomy 25, we read that their attack was cowardly and wicked. This is from Deuteronomy 25, where Moses writes, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Amalek here is acting like the wolves in planet Earth. They're hanging out around the back and picking off and killing the young and the old. And let's like not euphemize that. They are actually sneak attacking and likely killing old, the old, the elderly, likely killing some women and children who are struggling to keep up with the rest of the nation. So in verse 9, Moses says to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow, I will stand on the top of the hill with a staff of God in my hand. Now, again, not very much context here, but this is the very first time that we've ever read or heard the name of Joshua in the Bible. But again, the people of the original audience wouldn't need any commentary. It's like saying, uh, you know, someone who is so well-known, so well-known of a military leader or whatever context we might be talking about, you don't need to give much backstory. It's like if I just said, and then in that time, uh, the Continental Congress appointed George Washington as the commander-in-chief of the army. We don't, nobody in America needs to hear, who's that guy? Like, we all know, yeah, that makes perfect sense that the commander-in-chief, the military leader, is first appointed here. So Amalek and Joshua, though, are not the parts that my guess is many of you and even me, are interested in. What in the world is going on in this very strange story? This is a weird story. I remember this story as like a second or third grader in my Sunday school class at Denton Bible Church. At the beginning of the class, uh, the the Sunday school teacher, he asked, we didn't have any context what the Bible lesson was, was going to be for that day. He just asked one of the boys to go stand up on a chair and hold his arms out. 
And uh, he, didn't give him, he didn't give him any context, just asked him to go do that. And uh, then we started working our way through Exodus, and it finally became clear to us, oh, he's like acting like Moses. And then, you know, after like two or three minutes, we look over, and it's not going well, right? Like, especially for like a nine-year-old or something. But a grown man, that's hard to do, just to hold your arms out for much longer than like five minutes. I didn't try this week. Maybe I should have. But uh, as the class progressed, uh, the, the teacher asked uh, two other boys to go and help out and like stand underneath him and hold, him, hold his arms out. And uh, throughout the rest of the class, uh, he seemed to do well, like the, he held his arms for like the rest of the class. Uh, I'm not sure if I can remember the application that the teacher made for us that morning, but I think, I think as a child, like the enduring principles that I walked away from that class were something like that Moses is kind of like a voodoo doll, like, whatever he does, like, goes well out on the, the, the battlefield. And second, like, teamwork is great. Uh, I'm sure my incredibly faithful and wonderful school, Sunday school teacher taught it much better than that, but I don't think I really understood this story at all as a child. And I'm, I'm not sure that many of us understand this. I, I, when I, I knew this text was coming, and I was like, this is a weird, weird story. But I'm not sure before this week I really understood it well at all either. So let's, I told you we're not going to have a, uh, an outline for this, but here's an outline, two headings for the rest of this uh, chapter, that Moses is a voodoo doll, and two, the power of teamwork. Uh, this is how we're going to work through. Uh, this, no, this is not, not, so true, not true at all. He's not a voodoo doll, but so what's, what's going on? Here's the thing. During this week, as I was preparing for this and studying through this, uh, I think it became clear to me what this story is all about. I think this story becomes pretty straightforward and easy to understand if you are paying attention to a theme that uh, has been coming and going throughout the book of Exodus. In fact, has been coming and going throughout Genesis and Exodus. Uh, we've seen this pop up a couple times, but we haven't really spent a ton of time on this yet until now. I think we really need to. And that is that the, the theme of Moses as the image of God. Now, that sounds weird because I think we typically tend toward thinking of this theology of the image of God as something like uh, all humans have, we all are, we all carry the image of God because we are all like rational beings and we have a conscience or something. Or unlike the animals, we can create music and art or unlike the animals, we are actually able to know God or something like that. And it's true that all humans are created in and bear God's image, uh, and this is something that all humans have and give them inherent dignity. But beginning in Genesis 1, Adam is created in the image of God as God's ruling extension on earth. Humans are God's delegated and representative means to extend the reign and rule of God on earth. We'll think more about this when we get to the second commandment on the Ten Commandments about making graven images. These are false representative images uh, of other gods. We don't need to make other images because there are plenty images already on the earth. They're called humans. And also, we'll have plenty more to think about when we get to the, the, the bit where Moses comes down from the mountain with a shining face, reflecting God's glory. There's some really exciting image of God stuff uh, there as well. But for now, I'd like to suggest that the image of God isn't merely something that, that humans are created with, that preserve their dignity. That's true. But imaging God is something that humans not only are, but that humans do. As an extension of God's rule and reign, humans can image God very clearly 
and well, or humans can image God very poorly and very confusingly. And so throughout Exodus, if you aren't thinking in these categories, it can actually be unclear who it is that is doing the acting within this story. Is it Moses or is it Yahweh? Is it God? At the burning bush, God tells Moses all the wonderful things that he's going to do, the power and might that he is going to show in, Exodus, or in, in, in Egypt, and he's going to do all of these things. And then at the end of that, that, that event, Moses, God tells Moses, all right, now you go and do it. And Moses doesn't really argue much, but if we're reading that for the first time, we might be like, wait, what's going on? I thought you were going to do all of this, God. And then he says, God tells him, he says, uh, I am going to do these things, but you, Moses, will be God to Pharaoh. Not you won't be like God, but you will be God. Of course, there's only one God, but the reign and rule of Yahweh will be executed on earth through Moses. And then throughout the Pentateuch, these first five books of the Bible, we hear of how God brought out the people from Egypt with and, and uh, ruled over them and delivered them with a, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. So here's a little doctrine of God 101 for us. God the Father does not have a body, okay? He does not have a mighty hand, and he does not have an arm to outstretch. So is this just a metaphor then? Yes and no. Is there a place or is there a, someone else in this story that often or even once outstretches his or her arm? Yes, it happens all the time within Exodus. Moses does it all the time. He outstretches his arm over the Nile. He turns it into blood. He outstretches his arm to bring the hail and the locusts. He outstretches his arm over the Red Sea, parting and delivering his people through. And here he outstretches his arm with the staff uh, over the battle with the Amalekites. So is it Moses or is it Yahweh who is enacting judgment on his enemies? Yes. Is it Moses or is it Yahweh who is delivering God's people? Yes. There is just so much to consider here with the image of God that I'm looking forward to getting to more deeply because I think it's so fundamental to our understanding of the rest of the Bible and what Jesus has in fact come to do. Uh, our best and most joyful life comes when we are living more and more like Jesus, more and more as God's extension on earth, being conformed to his image. There's New Testament language all over the place, but for now we can say here was a people. Here is a people, Amalek, who hates God, and they hate his people, or hate his people, and so God is going to enact judgment on them, not only for this like singular wolf-like act of violence, but for generations and generations worth of violence, of sin, of rebellion, of hatred of God, of wickedness. But God is not going to act by himself, maybe like another Passover, angel of death event like we saw in Egypt. He's going to act like he nearly always does. He will act through human extensions of his rule and of his reign. And so in a symbolic display of his power, the people, as they're fighting, could look up on the mountain and see the arm and the staff outstretched in power. It's like, and the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that the flag was still there. They can, as bombs are going off, you know, ancient bombs and rockets, uh, whatever, swords are clanging, they can look up 
and see the outstretched arm of Moses and trust in the mighty hand of God. Yahweh is their flag. Moses at the end, or in verse 15, after the battle is won, he's going to build an altar and he's going to rename this entire place. The Lord Yahweh is our banner. Yahweh is our flag. It's very likely true that Yahweh fought not just here to uh, the, the, what Moses is doing isn't just like keeping up the morale of the people that they could look up and see him still standing there, but he, Yahweh is likely still even here miraculously fighting in and through his people, as David would later tell Goliath, the battle is the Lord's. Yahweh will fight for his people. As long as Moses is extending judgment against Amalek, God's judgment extends through his people. So this story is actually a story of judgment. Just as Moses outstretched his arm nearly always in the plagues and over the Red Sea, it's not just a story of deliverance, but it is a story of judgment. And throughout the centuries, Christian interpreters have tried to make this story a, often a one-for-one picture of Jesus. Moses is up on the hill. He is overseeing the battle. His arms are outstretched, and there is a man on either side of him. I think that's likely a bit of a stretch, but maybe not. I mean, if Jesus is the rock in chap- in the earlier in chapter 17, then I don't, maybe it's not so much of a stretch that we see him here as well. But as one commentator says, there is an important difference. Moses stretches out his hands to dispense judgment, and Jesus stretches out his hands to receive judgment. Moses is up on the mountain extending the judgment of God out onto God's enemies, but Jesus is up on the mountain receiving the judgment of God that he, make, that he might make God's enemies his friends. Nevertheless, the New Testament is clear that while Jesus has indeed fought and won the battle, our lives are lives that we still live as lives of war. No longer against flesh and blood, no longer against Amalek or Canaan or Iran or China, but against the sin inside of us and against the spiritual powers outside of us. I'm not going to open that can of worms here tonight of the spiritual powers outside of us. I think we might still have some, some places in Exodus to go for that. But it is to Christ, the truest image of God, that we look. Listen to this gold from Spurgeon. Spurgeon, this great uh, 1800s preacher in London, once preached this, the children of Israel were not under the power of Amalek. They were free men. And so we are not under the power of sin any longer. The yoke of sin has been broken by God's grace from off our necks. And now we have to fight not as slaves against the master, but as free men against a foe. Moses never said to the children of Israel while they were in Egypt, go fight with Pharaoh. Not at all. It is God's work to bring us out of Egypt and to make us his people. But when we are delivered from bondage, although it is God's work to help us, we must be active in our cause. Not that we are alive from the, now that we are alive from the dead, we must wrestle with principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness if we are to overcome. People of Jesus, it is Christ, your captain, who has fought for you and won. He has fought and conquered and bought your salvation and your redemption. He has brought you from slavery, from freedom to freedom. He has brought you from death to life. But now, as Paul wraps up his first letter to the Corinthians, he, Paul says, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Men, our city is in desperate need of men who will act like men. 
who will grow in humble strength, who will seek to care for those around them, who will love our neighbor by refusing to seek out pornography instead of seeking to exploit and use our neighbor, who will make a plan for this day, for this week, for this month on how to point our families to Christ, make a plan for this day, this week, this month, how to point our roommates, our friends, our co-workers to Christ. And an encouraging lunch with one of you this week, who as a new father, he has spent the entirety of 2019 under, he, he developed a, like a mission statement on what it would look like to be a dad. And he came up with this, to so nourish my family with the fruit of God that they may be able to discern from and ultimately reject the fruit of the world. And so he has made daily and weekly and monthly decisions that would align with that overall mission statement, to so nourish my family with the fruit of God that they may be able to discern from and ultimately reject the fruit from the world. Act like a man. That's, that's acting like a man and being strong and leading his family. Our city needs men who will take responsibility, not just over their own home and over their own selves, but to seek to protect and care for the weak and the vulnerable in our communities as well. I'm so thankful for the friendships and the relationships that many of us have been able to foster and build in working and moving toward the vulnerable at Carinet and in these surrounding schools as we are helping and getting to know folks at the homework diners. But on the heels of last week's sermon, in light of asking myself over and over and over again in the last two weeks, what do I want? I have been really confronted this week as an image bearer of God, as one who is meant to extend the grace and mercy and reign and rule of God on earth, what is it that I want and how ought this move me more passionately out from what I'm afraid might actually be a deeper desire, that of comfort, that of just ease and uninterruption. But fighting as Christians applies to every Christian's not just the males in this room. We are embodied humans. We are male and female. The image of God is not a fully operational battle station until it is male and female. At the risk of taking a couple sentences out of the context of our three-week foray into gender from last gender, remember that if men symbolically stand for something, if men symbolically stand for power and strength, then women also stand for something as well. Women often stand for the, hearts, the heart and the bonds of our community, the inner life and the source of our community. If Eve received the image of God from Adam when she came from his rib, every single other human male has received the image of God when he comes from his mother's womb. And that's certainly not to say that women shouldn't pursue or exhibit or even apologize for strength like Deborah, most of the godliest women in the Bible are strong. They are full of conviction. They are not afraid to stand up to abuse of power. But in the same way that our nuclear families provide nurture, care, and gentleness through their mothers, our, our churches, our communities, our friendships need these qualities as well. A church is not its men. A church is not its pastors or its elders. 
A church is its people, its men and women, its sisters and brothers, its mothers and its fathers who are fighting in strength and humility. Not the men fighting in strength and the women fighting in humility, but growing and being conformed more and more to the image of God, all of us together growing in strength and in humility, all of us together growing in conviction and grace, in courage and mercy. So, Christ Church, fight. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Fight in your own lives. Fight for your own families. Fight for the good and the life of our own church. Fight for the life and the good of the community around us. Fight not to win your salvation, but because it has been won for you. An army that does not train and prepare for battle will be crushed in battle. We must train. We must grow in godliness. Put sin to death. Push back against the darkness. Extend the rule and reign of God in your own lives and in the lives of those he has put in your life and in whatever domain the Lord has put you in. Be an image of God. Extend the rule and reign of God. His character, his grace, his love, his mercy. Now, I don't think Exodus 17 is necessarily about gender complementarity or is about teamwork or something, but it certainly wouldn't be a stretch to perhaps suggest that Aaron and her are acting in the same way that Jethro will actually suggest for Moses in the next chapter of 18, in giving him relief of allowing Moses to sit down over Israel and to lead them. We'll save our deeper reflections for that next week, but we certainly do need each other as we move out into the world and in our own lives as God's image bearers. Verse 12, Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and they put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Aaron and Hur are helping Moses stand as an image bearer of God helping him stand and then even sit as the extension of God's judgment and salvation. So perhaps we need to hear, ask not what your church can do for you, but what you can do for your church, in a Boston accent. We need to hear this and put ourselves not as the main character of our story, of our life, and of this church, but considering ourselves as the supporting characters not thinking of ourselves as the Moses, but of the her. Who the heck is her? We never hear from him again, other than to maybe hear that his grandson might be a, a, an artisan, a craftsman in the later tabernacle. But man, what, what a life story. What a legacy for this man to help and encourage Moses, to encourage the image of God, the salvation of his people, and the judgment of his, of his enemies. And then we get this little coda of reflection in the aftermath in verse 14. And then the Lord Yahweh said to Moses, write this as a memorial in the book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Now all this sword and utterly blotted out stuff, again, might grate against our modern sensibilities. So perhaps to remind you of three principles from six weeks ago when we were considering the Passover. I think we're going to actually include a link of a blog of these three principles, where I got these three principles for, uh, from in the weekly email. They're, it's really, really helpful. But consider, as Amalekites are dying, 
literally, they're like getting run through with swords. It is a violent scene that we don't have uh, the full description of here. So what in the world? Is it, how can it be that God might have people killed, slaughtered, and blotted out forever? Consider these. As the maker of all things and the ruler of all people, God has absolute rights of ownership over all people in all places. But that also, God is not only the ultimate maker, ruler, and owner, but he is also just and righteous in all that he does. But then a third principle that might be helpful for us all, that all of us deserve God's justice and none of us deserve God's mercy. All of us are in the same position of the Amalekites, deserving of judgment, deserving of justice. And then when Christ is up on the hill with his hands outstretched, receiving God's judgment on our behalf, then he makes his enemies his friends. The Amalekites are showing their utter disdain for God, their utter disdain for God's people. They would continue to bother, continue to plague, continue to kill God's people uh, for generations until God would ultimately keep his promises, his promise of removing them, blotting out their memory forever. Finally, years and years later, under Saul and under David. But here in this story, when in reflecting and considering the victory of God on this day, in verse 15, Moses builds an altar, and he calls the name of it the Lord. Yahweh is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This verse 16 is notoriously difficult to translate, but it seems likely that Moses is saying that Amalek lifted a hand of violence against the throne of Yahweh, so Yahweh then extended a hand of violence against Amalek. And by doing so, Yahweh becomes the banner of his people, the banner of love and of his justice. The Apostle John says that God is love. Not that God sometimes loves. God's not that sometimes does love, not that God loves, but God is love. The eternal nature of the triune God is a nature of love, of internal love for and from the distinct persons of the Godhead, but also for creation, that creation might experience and share in the love, the joy, the peace of the, of the triune Godhead. And so this story of judgment and justice is actually a story of God's love. The entire story of the Bible is a story of love, and yet justice is love. God is acting in justice out of love for his own name. God is acting in justice out of love for his people. God is acting in justice out of love for his creation, and that the Amalekites are seeking to ruin And so after seeing and reflecting on the love of God, the love of God to preserve his people, to provide for them and to protect them, the love of God to judge his enemies, I was really, really looking forward to turning the page on chapter 18 and seeing a contrasting story. Indeed, in chapter 17, the nations come up and fight. But in chapter 18, this is a story of hope and of love, where the nations come up and feast that Yahweh is a God of welcoming and gracious inclusion to all who would have their sins forgiven, 
to all who would love him and to be fed by him and to be filled by him. In just a moment, those of us who are professing faith in Christ, we're going to lay down our swords and we're going to remember what Christ has done in battle for us on our behalf. And we're going to feast in thankfulness, feast in worship. And then after that, we're going to welcome five new members of our church, five folks who at some point in their lives have said, I will fight against him no longer. I will lay down my sword and be included with him. I'm not just some random individual Christian wandering around in the wilderness by myself. This, doesn't, this isn't a picture that we have in this, this wilderness wandering. There aren't, there aren't any random Israelites just walking around by themselves. These are people, though, these five tonight, who are saying that they want to walk with his people. They want to be identified with his people. They want to be protected by his people. They want to be included with his people, not only to receive from them, but to contribute to them, to not only be encouraged by these people, but that they might encourage them. Encourage them to know Christ, encourage them to keep walking after him and to follow him in all that we do. I really love these nights. One of my, we do it about three times a year and I love them. They're like three of my favorite nights of the year. So I'm just going to pray right now so we can get to it, all right? Uh, God, we are thankful for your word to us. We are thankful for this odd story, this odd way that you uh, interjected yourself into time and space and history, this odd way that you preserved protected your people and that you judged your enemies and that yet you did. Might we learn from it? Might we ourselves uh, be each day more and more conformed into the image of Christ, looking and acting and loving and responding like he does, worshiping and loving you like he does? Might we also, though the battle is won, still be strong, putting sin to death in our own life, pushing back the darkness where, it, we, we, where we see it creeping in amongst us with the light of Christ, with the hope of the gospel, with mercy and kindness to those who would receive it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ's church, visit www dot Christchurchabq.com